1: The Jane Show Talk Radio for Fine Minds airs Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Eastern and is always available for your listening pleasure at HallecasterJane.com. And hello, everybody. Thank you for joining me. I am Hallie Jane. Today on the Hallie Jane Show... We are traveling beyond the Twilight Zone with Anne Serling, the daughter of one of the legends of television, Rod Serling, the creator of the cosmic series, The Twilight Zone. But before we begin, a brief message from one of our sponsors. You will listen to the Hallie Kesser jane Show, talk radio for fine minds. The Hallie Kesser jane Show is always available online at HallieKesslerJane.com. Today, the Hallie Caster Jane Show is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to the audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it. With over 150,000 titles in virtually every genre, you'll find what you're looking for. Get a free I said that free audiobook and 30 day trial today by signing up at www.audibletrial.com forward slash The Hallie Kasser Jane Show. Is someone you love living with frequent pain? Are they spending more time just sitting in a chair or lying in bed or going to the ER more often? Other than taking them to the
0: doctor, you may not know what else to do. Treasure Coast Hospice can help in more ways than you may realize. Even if you don't think your loved one is ready for hospice care, their experts can evaluate your loved one's condition and direct you to the right
1: resources in our community. Call Treasure Coast Hospice to learn more or visit tchospice.org. To Anne Serling, the imposing figure the public saw and heard hosting the Twilight Zone each week, intoning cautionary observations about fate, chance, and humanity, was not the father that she knew. Her fun-loving dad would play on the floor with the dogs, had nicknames for everyone in the family, and was apt to put a lampshade on his head and break out in song. Her father, Rod, was her best friend, her playmate, and her confidant. In her new book, As I Knew Him, My Dad Rod Sterling, writer Anne Serling, a former early childhood teacher with a Bachelor of Arts degree in elementary education and the woman who serves on the board of directors of the Rod Sterling Memorial Foundation and is involved with the Rod Sterling School of the Arts fifth dimension program, takes us behind the twilight zone in a moving send up to her legendary father, one of the icons of television and surely one of the great writers ever to emerge from Hollywood. Tender, thoughtful, haunting. The book has received rave reviews, and I am pleased to welcome Anne Sterling. But first...
2: There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known
1: to man. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we
2: call the twilight zone.
1: And that voice, that music, such a departure from the father that you describe in your book as I knew him, my dad, Rod Serling. What kind of bedtime stories did your father tell you? Not those, I'm sure, and I know. How are you, Anne?
2: Hi, Hallie. How are you? <laughs> I'm great. Not stories like people would imagine. Um, not scary stories at all. My, we used to have these little puppets, and one was a, my sister's little cat puppet. And my father would do different voices and- and you tell all these different stories that, you know, revolved around this cat And just no, no Twilight Zone stories
1: You know, to understand the writer and creator, Rod Joling, I think we have to travel back in time Share with us his childhood He was raised in upstate New York, right?
2: He was born in Syracuse and raised in Binghamton And had a very idyllic childhood Even though, you know, it was during the Depression Where he grew up in Binghamton It was pretty uh, protected from all that was going on um, in the world Because of... Um, a shoe store, and IBM, so the, the town, you know, was, was pretty preserved, and uh, my dad just, like I said, had an idyllic, very, very happy childhood. And Class Clown, <laughs>
1: I love her, you have, it. I love, she has in the book his report cards even, I mean, this book is just really quite, quite the send-up to your dad,
2: but he was, right? He was a fun-loving kid. Yeah, he he was absolutely the Class Clown.
1: And sports minded, and had a great relationship with his brother, his older brother, right?
2: Right, absolutely. Okay, and it's
1: interesting to me, you know how I related to him, he was a small guy in stature, certainly not in personality, but in stature, as I always was, I was always the one who had to sit, you know, be first in the class, because I was the shortest, and what have you, and he had that too, right, I mean, he was much smaller than people, and I bring this up, because I think later it plays a part, um, how did he feel about being small, he ever discussed that, um, about being?
2: I'll, always with humor, Um I think people were surprised when they met him that he was so short. Uh, They weren't anticipating that. But my dad all, you know, took it in fun. And, uh, you know, if it bothered him, it was never evident to me.
1: You know, it's really interesting. Um, A friend of mine, a director in Hollywood, once said to me that TV personalities have one thing in common amongst all the others. And that is they always have, particularly males, have very large heads. And, of course, they're stunningly handsome, as your father was. I had a handsome Happy. father. Wasn't that, wasn't that fun having a handsome father? And didn't all your girlfriends go goo goo ga over him?
2: Right. Although, you know, I didn't really think of my dad as handsome. He was just, I, I really, although my, my friends did. He was just, I, I always just sort of thought of him as my dad and fun.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. He, he was raised Jewish. So, and, and, and this is something that I think comes through. He, you know the old expression, a nice Jewish boy. He really was a nice Jewish boy, right?
2: He was. He was. And, and people that met him, and I hear this from people all the time who, who you know, even if they only passed him and, you know, said hello, my father was always very social and very friendly and, and never turned people away if they wanted an autograph. Yeah, and his, his heritage was very, very important to him. Yeah.
1: And and it comes through in his work, that's for sure. Let's go to his Army experience, because I do think that was life-altering. Of course, it would be for anybody, and it was in particular for him. He enlisted in the service in World War II. Talk to to us a little bit about that part of his life.
2: Right. He enlisted the day after he graduated from high school. He'd wanted to go um, to Europe because he really wanted to fight the Nazis, but he was sent uh, to the Philippines. And before he'd left, he, he always sort of thought he'd major in phys ed when he went to college, but he was, like like you said, like so many, traumatized by the war uh, that he switched to language and literature because, as he said, I needed to get it off my chest, I needed to get it out of my gut. He, he just was... Uh, it was just an incredibly difficult period for him that I think, you know, never really left him ever.
1: Yeah, and he was wounded. That's something else which he carried with him for the rest of his life. I mean, in fact, he, he was awarded both a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star. I, I think this is interesting, too. Let's talk a little bit about his boxing career. During the during the war, that's fascinating, and that will play a huge role in his writing. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, he he wanted to earn some extra money, so he he boxed, and he was I can't remember what it uh, is it feather featherweight or featherweight. Yeah. yeah. Um, in fact, I recall that he would sort of pretend to box with me. He was quite good. <laughs> you know, it was a little frustrating, <laughs> but um, yeah. Then he would go on to write Requiem for a Heavyweight, and. Uh, always really identified with the character, you know, the fighter, you know, the worn out has been. And I think that's, you know, that that really played into a lot of his a lot of his writing actually, not just Requiem.
1: Yeah. We're going to talk about Requiem a little bit in a little bit more depth and I'm going to tell you why in a minute, but your grandfather passed away of a heart attack at 52, your father's father. And your father wasn't able to get leave to go attend the funeral. And that just devastated him, didn't it?
2: He was so traumatized by that. And I actually connected with one of my father's old war buddies who vividly remembered seeing my dad after he'd gotten the news. And as his, this friend Russ said, he'd never seen anyone so devastated. What, what a relationship
1: he had with his father. You know, and I, and I translate that because you know what? Our parents learn how to parent as we learn how to parent from our parents. Um, the fact that he was such a great father to you girls, you know? Right, learned, absolutely. Learn from mom and from his parents. So the war ends. Do you think that he had? Ever, uh, do we think you know? But did he have any clue what he wanted to do with the rest of his life upon leaving? Well, you
2: know, as I, you know, he had wanted originally to go into phys ed because he liked working with kids. But then when he changed the language and literature, you know, I'm sure it took him, like any vet, a, a lot of time to acclimate. And um, those, those were very difficult times when you know when they came back from the war. But he, he launched into writing and well the rest is history.
1: <laughs> that's for sure. He did go to college. Where did he go? He went, Right, he went to, to Antioch
2: College in Yellow right. Springs, Ohio.
1: And that's where he met your mom Carol.
2: Yes? That's right. Tell right. us about Tell us about that. Tell us about their romance. Well, th- what my mother had always said was she figured he had dated almost every co-ed on campus. And when she first saw my father, he, he did an incredibly uh, great gorilla uh, imitation. And, uh, of course, when she saw him doing this, she thought he was a bit of an idiot. But uh, she, she also, when she got to know him, realized how bright he was. And she was 18, actually, when he asked her to marry him and she wait she waited until she was 19 and then they got married uh, she
1: and they lived was not in
2: Camp- right she was I'm not sorry. jewish
1: i, I was going to say because we do have a delay today i don't know why she was not jewish and um that and she had an interesting childhood herself probably much more traumatizing than than cuz she lost her mom in the beginning and then was raised by her grandparents i i think i remember reading um uh, and her father, who was not an active part of her life, did take issue with her her marrying him because he was Jude, Rod, because he was Jewish. Is that correct? And but that was fixed later. Um, you know, I bring this up only because I think all of this does play so much into his writing and uh, his work. He'd written, he's written, that he never had a master plan or a built-in compulsion to write. I've got a lot of writers who I know listen to this show, and so I'm going to go into some of the depth of, uh, uh, about his writing. Is it fair to say that he was bitter after the war and that he had a lot to say and writing helped get it off his chest? Do you think that that's where he went into that art
2: Definitely, and, and in fact, it, it, that's what he did say, that he was bitter and, and at loose ends when he got out of the war. Yeah, but you're
1: in an interesting role. I don't think most children know their parents as well as you knew your dad. Did you know your dad as well before you wrote the book, as you did after you wrote the book, and it was the research that got you here? I was curious. I just was well, thinking about that.
2: I didn't know a lot about my, my dad's professional life um, at all. And, in fact, I never even watched most of the Twilight Zones I saw after my father died. And I watched primarily to see him, not necessarily the show. Um, But, you know, writing the book, that's where I learned a lot more about his professional life. The personal stuff, of course, was always there. In fact, I had written after my father died. I had started another book called In His Absence because I was so traumatized. and, And like my dad, I find writing cathartic. That I couldn't finish that book because I was still so much in the throes of grief that I, I just couldn't get through it.
1: Let me, let me say this right now. As I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with the public what I said to you off air, which is, this really is quite a book you've written. And I said, without meaning to sound condescending, that your father would be proud because you definitely got his gift, lady. Uh, great book. I want everybody to read this book. And I say that also, this is what struck me about him. This is how I took it after reading the book. I think that he was quantitatively in touch with his feelings, this man. And as I got to know him through your eyes, through that brilliant writing of yours, you know what I kept thinking? I couldn't help thinking that his gift, among his many gifts, was that he lived at once in the present and the past that was kind of mm-hmm. his personal twilight zone, if you will. it's like he, that, let, he, that, he Right, he never left anything behind, but he was abundantly present at the moment. That's extraordinary. Yeah, that's, a, most that's people, a great, right?
2: yeah absolutely. That's a that's a that's a great assessment. Um yeah, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it came to me
1: and, 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 and that's what that's what it is. That's what I got. That's it. And if you could just take that and incorporate that in your life, oh my gosh, right? that's the key he
2: he said that he had a preoccupation with the past and a lot of his writing obviously um had to do with going back in time but but you're right he was also very present
1: and and i think it was his way of figuring out the emotions not the events but the emotions i can relate to that Uh, he amassed a huge amount of friends in his life he was a very 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 well-loved man for sure
0: um No purchase necessary. Void, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: In the golden age of television, actually the beginning of television, he wasn't even yet
0: be able to call, that he was the beginning of TV. So
1: let's talk a little bit here about his start in television, which really began with his writing for radio. And this interests me a lot, and Earl, Earl Hammer played such a role in your dad's life. Now, for those who don't know who Earl Hammer is, let me just say two words. The Waltons. <laughs> and then mix that up with Rod Serling, the Twilight Zone. I find that extraordinary. Um, talk to me a little bit um, about that, and because right from the get-go, here we go with image and your dad.
2: Right, yeah, Earl. I just met Earl Hamner actually in September, and I must say, what a lovely, lovely guy he is. Um, my, my dad had written in college a radio show uh, for a doctor, and he doctor a uh, doctor Christian. I think it's Dr. Christensen Award Earl Hamner also won and that's when they met and um, eventually my dad got the job that Earl had had uh, on the radio program And my father would joke with him that Earl gave him his first job.
1: (laughs) I love that. I mean, it really is so funny. Uh, You were listening to, by the way, the Hallie Caster Jane Show, Talk Radio for Fine Minds, always available for your listening pleasure at com. Today we are talking with the brilliant writer, new writer, I think. She's going to have more to give us in the future, And Sterling, daughter of Rod. Great book. As I knew him, my dad, Rod. Sterling. I don't have to tell you there are mountains of material out there about your dad and the common assessment of him is that he was a dark and wounded soul. We'll talk more about Rod Sterling as you knew him after the break. But the fact is, while he might have had his demons, who doesn't? They weren't in control of him. Right?
2: No, not not at all.
1: And and I think that's fascinating because you know, I did a lot of homework besides reading your book. And everybody wants to put this man into this little Corner Right. And define him. And we're going to talk more about that later. He was known as the, quote unquote, angry young man of Hollywood clashing with television executives and censorship racism and more. He did, in fact, do that. But I think he did it for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons, um, my observation again. I'm curious what you think. I think he just had more courage than a lot to rail against the truth that others um, either didn't see or didn't want to see or didn't have your dad's courage to reveal. And it's tough going up, even in today's times, against sponsors and studio execs. Ask me. What are your thoughts?
2: Oh, absolutely. He and, and in fact, he was quoted as saying he felt that it was the writer's job to menace the public, the public's conscience, and he was incensed that he couldn't write meaningful scripts without you know, the blue pen coming down and, and sabotaging everything he'd written and censoring everything he was trying to say. Uh, for instance, he wrote a script where the Chrysler building showed in, the New, in a New York skyline, and because the sponsor was Ford, they had to black that out, um, and, and more ridiculous things like that. He, wa- he very much wanted to write the story about Emmett Till and uh, couldn't. Everything that he was trying to say, you know, he couldn't put Coke Coke bottles on a set because then people would immediately think the South, and for some reason that couldn't be done. Um, Finally, his script that he was writing, uh, I think it was called The Town Is Turned to Dust, and he said in the end, my script has turned to dust. So he was just so frustrated with the censors, which in part was why he launched The Twilight Zone, where he realized that um, an alien could say what a Democrat or a Republican couldn't, <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it slipped under the radar and the censors didn't know what had hit them and didn't realize, you know, that he was still getting this, this, these, mes- these important messages out there.
1: It's always fun to be smarter than, 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 than the, the, the censors, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I mean, right. Um, and we'll, we'll go into that also in depth in a little bit when we get to the Twilight Zone because I think that's fascinating. Um. I have to say also something that you revealed in the book that I liked, that I didn't know about. And, and I have to say, I love your father's style. One day, he just decided that he was going to throw all of his eggs in one basket. He was going to go for broke or nothing, and he was going to go full time to be the writer. And your mom is six months pregnant at this time, by the way, folks, with her older sister, Jody, And this gamble obviously, uh, you know, uh, paid off, to say the least. So let's talk about that breakout hit that he did get. We're jumping a little bit, Patterns. Um, he launched it into the upper stratosphere of TV writers with the 55 broadcast called Patterns, a story centered on cutthroat corporate politics that rings true even today. He earned uh, critical acclaim and an Emmy Award. And a craft television theater restaged the live production, by the way. This is interesting because wasn't that, that was the first rerun for television, yes, Pat, right? Right, I'm, the first yeah. they had repeated. So, so let's talk, The teleplay is not even a word that's in the lexicon. That is how iconic and how much a force your dad was to the medium of television. Do people realize that, I wonder? You know?
2: Far more. I than don't know. That was, I don't yeah. know.
1: And I think it's important to understand that because far more than being this phenomenal writer that he was, he really was one of the giants who contributed to the beginning of television. I want to make that point clear. Um, How did he deal with fame and success? Were they important to him?
2: You know, I don't know. Were they important to him? I I wouldn't say necessarily. I'm I'm sure he liked the recognition most of the time i'm sure sometimes it was a pain in the ass mm-hmm. um but like i boy never turned anybody away if people wrote them it wrote to him he always wrote back um and and back then you know the paparazzi weren't like they are today it wasn't this mad uh, in your face craziness that you see today so it was a little it was it was a lot more sane um, but i you know i think my dad he 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 said that, you know, the reason that he was successful was because of his fans, so he was always very appreciative.
1: You tell a story, You I think you're in an amusement park, you may be at Disneyland, and he's, fans come up to him. From your perspective, what was that like?
2: Well, you know, again, it wasn't, thank God, like it is today. Sometimes it was a little frustrating uh, because we didn't, you know, want my dad taken away from us, um, even for a moment. But... Um, I, I don't know that I could have survived it today. I don't know how people manage today with the way it is. It was saner back then.
1: <laughs> saner back then. Um, he did win an Emmy for Patterns, and there's a great story in the book. He's on the stage collecting the Emmy, and what happens? <laughs> He's there by himself. What? <laughs>
2: Right. There was apparently no one no one there to hand it to him, and apparently somebody that worked backstage took sympathy on him and brought it out. But it was, you know, one of those incredible moments. Yeah, you know, was
1: it Ed Sullivan was supposed to give it to him, and he got waylaid with somebody somewhere off stage? I don't know. I just find that so funny because, you know, we all just watched all the award shows, and can you imagine that happening today? Not even a possibility. It's just pretty extraordinary. Let's go back to uh, 56 in the rec- uh for for heavyweight. Part of Playhouse 90. For those of a different generation who um, didn't know about these early shows of television, if you go back and watch Requiem for a Heavyweight, it is still, in my opinion, one of the best scripts, film or television or stage ever written. You agree?
2: Absolutely. And and you know the interesting thing is a a lot of uh, they still do it. They still do plays on it. Um, all across the country. It's still being done probably years later. Right, was that Jack Palance's
1: first uh, break, first role or his breakout role?
2: Um that I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure either. I have to I have to find out about that. Anyway, it did earn your dad a second Emmy. Second Emmy, oh my goodness. I'm not sure that television has ever equaled, as I said, requiem for a heavyweight. Um certainly not in, <laughs> in these types. And then we get back into This conversation, Anne, how much of his own life he actually does put in so much of his work, and this was one of those places, as we said earlier, he took up featherweight boxing during the Army, and um, and then he he used it in his work, and I think that if you go and you trace back his stuff, as I'm sure you did – you find all sorts of his personal life wending its way into his work, and particularly you guys, right? Your your, your family life and your sister and you,
2: right? Right? You know, and, and like I said before, the the theme of going back in time too was was very prevalent in a lot of his writing.
1: The um, he had a nickname for you. Uh, several.
2: <laughs> <laughs> one was one one was Grumpel Nanny Pops. Nanny. Yeah, Pop there were several. So Even our name, dogs yeah. had nicknames.
1: Even the dogs. One of what didn't one of your names show up in? Um, uh, in some of his work Nan
2: Right my nickname was Nan And I was uh, a little stunned when I saw that episode The Hitchhiker And he used my name in that one uh, Then he used it again In a in a Twilight Zone called A Passage for Trumpet I think it was called And uh, that was a little gentler show So I I didn't mind that one so much
1: Did you express how you felt about it to him?
2: Don't recall that, Um, and I'm not even sure when I became aware of it, but I don't remember a discussion about that. No.
1: Okay. Before we go to break, as we move into the personal relationship that you guys had and who he was off camera, tell me what you think the funniest thing you ever saw your dad do was.
2: Oh boy, he so many things. You know, one of the things I was just telling someone about. he would tell me dirty dirty limericks just about just when we were gonna get on an elevator and would of course break out laughing and just as the doors would open and then we'd get in there, you know, with all those silent people and my father would then start to laugh and the two of us would just be beside ourselves giggling and looking like fools and you know, those are the things that I that I remember so vividly and, and you know, as I said before, his gorilla impersonation was impeccable.
1: I don't know. So, man, that's an image I just can't, for the life of me, get into my little brain um, thing. You know, I'm like you. I come from, I have my mom, my dad, my older sister, I'm the baby. You're the same. The relationship that you had, and as and I can see this with my sister, who my sister sees my parents completely differently than I do, right? I had a completely mm-hmm. different relationship, came at a different point, she too was quite a bit older than I am, um, like your sister is um that but that special bond that you and your dad had were you opposites, or did you just see the world the same way? What do you think made that so special?
2: I no, there was something very childlike like about my father and I was very aware of that even from an early age and I actually used to pretend I was his mother. Um I, I just Yeah. I just felt very connected to him always. I didn't go through what a lot of teenagers go through, you know, where you're so frustrated and angry with your parents. I never felt that with my father.
1: Yeah, I didn't either, which is interesting. See, I told you, you and I have a lot in common on that on that score, and that's maybe why I find um, this book so utterly fascinating. Um, you know, and it's always interesting to see people through child's eyes anyway. And I, and then, and that's the last question I'm going to talk get to before we go to break, which is when you perceive him now, is it as the child or the adult in you?
2: It's sort of a combination, I think.
1: So you can kind of, um, step back a little bit and assess it as an adult, uh, but that childhood connection never leaves even when they leave us, right?
2: Right, absolutely. And and you know now that I know so much about so much more about, you know, his war years and and why that because of the war why he turned to writing. I do know, if you will, another dimension of my dad that I, you know, didn't know really back then.
1: No, I certainly understand that. Um, let's take that break now because I'm anxious to get to um, to more of the personal life uh, uh, and the uh, revelation that you give us so brilliantly in your delicious new book, As I Knew Him, My Dad Rod Serling. So we're going to take that break here. I want everybody to sit back because i got to pay some bills. You too. Sit back, and we'll be right back with you. And when we come back, we will be myth busting with Anne Sterling about the man she knew better than almost anyone, her father, the Twilight Zones creator and Hollywood writer extraordinaire, Rod Sterling. Stay with us. You're listening to the Halley Caster Jane Show, Talk Radio for Fine Minds, brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com com forward slash the Caster jane show over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player.
0: Is someone you love living with frequent pain? Are they spending more time just sitting in a chair or lying in bed, or
1: going to the ER more often? Other than taking them to the doctor, you may not know what
0: else to do. Treasure Coast Hospice can help in more ways than you may realize. Even if you don't think your loved one is ready for hospice care, they're experts. With lucky
1: landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
0: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Experts can evaluate your loved one's condition and direct you to the right resources in our
1: community. Call Treasure Coast Hospice to learn more or visit tchospice.org. And we are back on the Hallie Caster jane Show Talk Radio for Fine Minds. It's nice to have you here with me today, the author of As I Knew Him, My Dad Rod Serling, a gorgeously written book by Serling's youngest daughter, Anne. Welcome again, Anne, to the Hallie jane Show. Hi, Anne. Hi, Hallie. Okay, I'm going to play another. I'm going to play the outro right now from The Twilight Zone. So everybody have a listen to this. of who this man is in your book. Oh, my. You know, Ann, you belong to that exclusive club, Children of Celebrities. What's it like being a member of that club?
2: Well, you know, I wasn't... My best friend, um, her dad was a writer, so, you know, we never felt that we were special in any way. Um so I really can't answer that.
1: So you just felt like a regular old kid and, uh, and really didn't realize what your dad, I mean, you, had, you learned later on kind of that your father was a pretty well-known writer, but it didn't affect your upbringing at all, you don't think?
2: Well, we were very shielded from that whole Hollywood you know, lifestyle. My parents' friends were mostly writers and producers. Um, he was The celebrities that I remember being at the house were um, Sherry Lewis, Uh, who was the lamb chop, she was the ventriloquist, Uh, I begged to meet her. And Betty White was a good friend of my dad's, who who I vividly recall. She was just as lovely back then as she is today, and she loved our dogs. Um, But but overall, we were, you know, and I I always knew my dad was a writer, but I didn't know specifically what he was writing until I was about seven, and I talked about this in the book. Um, when some mean boy on the playground asked me if I was something out of the Twilight Zone, and I didn't know what that meant, so I went home and I asked him, and he explained that he wrote for a series that it was a little too old for me. Um, but as, as, when he was describing this to me, we were watching our we were watching the Flintstones, and that was really more important to me than whatever he was describing to me.
1: <laughs> I get that, you know, and you talk about growing up, and it's funny because it, it, if you grow up with with celebrities around um and and i had this a little bit that's just normal you know like you just they're not that's just the way that it is right um so like you talked about Sherry lewis a little bit and i love this one um uh leave it to beaver's mother Barbara
2: Barbara Billingsley came to your house
1: (laughs) tell us about that i love this
2: um I, I don't mean, I don't recall if I even knew who she was, but I, but I do remember that she kept sending me into the kitchen for something, a napkin or this or that. And I thought she was a little annoying actually.
1: <laughs> that's so cute. And another one of your father's friends, somebody, this is funny cause I don't know, I always connected to this man Jerry Paris who played the dentist on the Dick Van Dyke show and was also the producer I think and writer at one point. Uh, that's another one who was around your house a whole lot. Um, uh, but but I love that Barbara Billingsley story. I think that's hilarious. It's another myth buster. Um, and all of it is part about, un, un well, I guess uncovering the myth, the Hollywood myth, that that thing that Hollywood does to people, wants to put them in categories and doesn't let them leave those categories. Uh, if you start out as an actor in one role, that's the kind of role that they want you to continue to play. Uh, if you start out as a writer, I guess um, – uh, and you're writing dark, you need to stay dark. Um, you think we should be skeptical, obviously, or that you wouldn't have written this book of images poured forth about Hollywood legends, right?
2: Right. In fact, um, that was one impetus behind my writing this book that, you know, my father had been described as this dark and uh, depressed person, and it was so, re- describing a person that was so remotely unfamiliar to me um, and false that I, you know, I wrote this. In part to set the record straight,
1: yeah, and it's got to—it's got to do something to a child's head to know that there's this crazy thing that has nothing to do with the person they know out there. They, I, that would be mind-bending, I would think, um, and something for you to work out as much as you know you want to work it out for the public. This is something that I totally relate to, and I think this is so. You guys were animal-loving lunatics in your family, and I love that—dogs, um, cats pet rats and pet rats right oh my your sister was a horse woman jody um and you lived two lives let's get into that briefly the life of hollywood and you also had a summer home that had been in your mom's family for a long time in upstate new york tell us about those two worlds and how how they affected your life
2: Right. Every summer we came east to our cottage in upstate New York that was built by my mother's grandfather and great grandfather. Um, Years later, my parents built another house uh, near near the cottage. But it was, you know, it was our chance to get out of California, and it was really a huge relief, particularly for my father, to get to get away. Even though he was always writing, he he wasn't under the pressure that he was when we were in California. So this was a great respite for my dad. My parents actually honeymooned at the cottage.
1: Do you still have the cottage in the family?
2: We do, yes.
1: Uh, and you're, both you and your sister live up near there, right? I won't say where. Right. But, um, yeah, both of them, you attach to that world rather than to the Hollywood world. Um, but, but I love scenes. I love you shuttling back and forth with your little animals <laughs> back and forth to L.A. Tell me the rats. Tell us the rat story on the plane.
2: First, I should tell you that when I wrote my book and my editor read the parts about the rats, she said, you mean mice? And I said, no, they were rats, and she couldn't quite get her head around that ever. (laughs) Yeah,
1: really. Mm.
2: Um, But flying with the rats, my mother had sewn this little, I don't know, this cloth thing to cover the cage, so no one would know what was inside (laughs) there. And my dad was flying alone once, and apparently the rat got out of the cage, and my father... As he told the story, was on his hands and knees uh, on the, in the uh, aisle looking for this rat, and when he finally got back to his seat, it was sitting on the arm of the <laughs> of the chair. Uh, yeah, a little harrowing there for a bit, I guess.
1: There's an image I think I will never forget. <laughs> I love that image. And I love something else. I, you know, I love the way you describe the role of your parents in your lives and the role each of them took in your lives, kind of like not what one would expect. I was going say 50s, 50-ish childhood, right? You were in the 50s a little later. Um your mom, Carol, the practical one, your dad, well, not so practical, I mean, not so technically uh, able either. He would build planes and what your mom
2: what Well, <laughs> couldn't, follow, couldn't read, read directions to put things together and, and but would try, God damn he, tried hard, but then <laughs> he would get frustrated throw, throw the instructions across the room, and my mother would take over. my mother was the pragmatic one for for sure, and who was the disciplinarian? <laughs> my mother. Yeah, not my, not my dad. I
1: love that. I bet you she was disciplining him too, right? <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> you know, the child the child, in in the man um, you know, for sure was there. And and I think that's interesting too because, you know, I don't know, for some reason, if you think of somebody who puts together something like the scripts of The Twilight Zone, you would think that they would be really great technically, um, you know, because it was in its own way so far ahead of its time. Um, but he wasn't. And I think that's pretty hilarious, actually. Um the, um, my, my uncle you know,
2: used to tell us that my, when my dad was doing together model airplanes, my father would get so frustrated and be swearing and swearing, and my uncle asked him once, why do you do this, Rod? And my father said, because it relaxes me.
1: <laughs> I love that. And, you know, it's funny because really and truly, you know, that, that's exactly how, what I, I get. I mean, I get where he would have to go. To get off that show. The man worked like a demon, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, too. Um, this is something also that I wanted to share with you. The, just you and me. Nobody else is listening to this. Just you and me, okay? He seems okay. to have imparted in you his gift of observation and recall. That's what makes this book, book so special. And, 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 and the other thing that I loved about it was the tense that you chose to write it in. So I imagine that you understand that body of work that is this thing called the Twilight Zone in a way differently than maybe others do. And I guess it had its themes, but what do you think was the overall overall arc that your dad was trying to get to the world? What do you think it was?
2: Well, I think he just felt that these social issues and moral issues were just so critical to get out there, and I believe that's why the Twilight Zone in particular has endured um, as long as it has, because it still deals with things that are, unfortunately, like prejudice, still so relevant and um, prevalent today. Not relevant Where do you, prevalent, I prevalent. Prevalent, right? Where do you think
1: he got his social conscience?
2: Um, probably from his own upbringing. He, you know, his. Although my dad was Jewish, he wasn't. You know, that he came. He was brought up in a um, non-Reformed Jewish family, but his first taste of prejudice actually came from his own people when he was blackballed from a fraternity in high school for dating non-jewish girls. And I always knew, even as a child that my father felt very passionate about prejudice and very angry and furious about how people could relate to other people and, and be so unkind and intolerable. And he had no patience for that. And,
1: and you know, you tell a great story in the book, um, one which, uh, um, kind of shocked me. Um, I thought I was the only one who felt this way about this show. Hogan's Heroes, he really 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 disliked the concept of that kind of a show. For those who don't know what it ran in the 70s and it was a um, Nazi war war criminals being held in a prisoner of war camp but it takes on this humor thing that wasn't that long after World War II, by the way. And your father just went nuts over that. And he was right. I never understood but how we that was past. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Right. We were never allowed to watch it. He he found absolutely nothing humorous about, you know, turning uh, concentration camps into something to be laughed about or uh, find any levity in that at all.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, just quickly, I want to go back because I think this is utterly uh, important about who he was, and that is how he got into writing, quote-unquote, science fiction, um, and that was because he felt he couldn't get what he wanted to say by the censor, so he, in a way, <laughs> re adopted the art of his writing to, um, what, camouflage the truth of what it was he wanted to say and he pulled the wool over everybody's eyes and he did it successfully. I have to tell you a very quick, very funny story. I just had Comcast here, as I was telling you off air, forget Comcast folks that can't get my internet to work. And they were just here once again trying to fix things before the show. And this guy, I'm sitting here writing the script for today's show and he's freaking out that I have you on the show. Um, I love Rod Serling. I love The Twilight Zone, and he's asking me a gazillion questions, and he's working on the computer, on the Internet, and I'm trying to carry on. You know, um, how far a reach, a lot younger, by the way, than you and I, this guy, but amazing, the reach that your father still has today to so many. Yes. Yeah, my, and
2: and no one would have been more stunned than my father. You know, he he once said that he was asked in an interview how he wanted to be remembered, and he said, "Well, if people can just remember that I'm a writer, that's an that's enough of an honor for me." But he, did, I don't think he believed that he that he would be remembered. <laughs> he said, how good writing like wine has to stand the test of time." and he didn't think that his writing would. But I think, you know, also all across the country, and um, this happens in Binghamton, New York, too, the entire fifth-grade uh, section or the entire fifth-grade classes in Binghamton all study the Twilight Zones, and they learn about prejudice and mob mentality and scapegoating. And these kids are, are so bright, and they really, really get this. In fact, one of the teachers talked about showing the episode The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, and she asked the class, who are the monsters? And she said the entire class stood up.
1: Hmm. Amazing, isn't it? Just amazing. You're listening to the Hallie Caster Jane Show, talk radio for fine minds, always available for your listening pleasure, at HallieCasterJane.com. Today, talking with Ann Serling. Wonderful, wonderful new book, new book, As I Knew Him, My Dad Rod Serling. And that's what we're talking about, Rod Sterling of The Twilight Zone. Um, ratings of The Twilight Zone were never to the moon. I think that's no. mostly because it was way ahead of its time. And it was canceled after five seasons, 156 episodes. Unbelievable. Your father wrote 92 out of those right. 156 episodes. He still had hair in his head when he was done uh, amazing, <laughs> totally. Do you remember when that went off air and how that changed his life?
2: I, you know, I wasn't really aware of what was going on then, um, but I, but I do know later that he felt that it had run its time. That they, for the most part, they'd had some good shows. He, he conceded that there were a few turkeys, but he was proud of the show, um, and I think ready to move on. He would never have dreamt that you know it would have the endurance. That it's had. He, you know, he sold the rights to the script. So
1: I know, knew, crazy, right? right? Oh my gosh! I mean, um, the uh, and and I think part of that was also uh, the, the guy who was here this afternoon didn't realize that it was your dad at the beginning of the show. He said, "That's Rod Serling. That's the guy who wrote it."
2: How interesting, oh, really? right? Yeah, yeah, and my dad was not my dad was not actually slotted to be the narrator. Uh, they had they had some guy whose name I can't remember, but and then they had wanted Orson Welles, who proved to be too expensive. So my father volunteered, which wasn't met initially with great enthusiasm. But um, well, the rest is history.
1: Right, absolutely, and also I love it. he wrote by dictaphone. He uh, he he talked into the dictaphone, and you say he acted out a lot of the parts, right?
2: Right, right. Originally, you know, I've done a typewriter, but he was a really fast typist with two fingers, but then he used a dictaphone.
1: I think that's so, so adorable.
2: Um, which was
1: his favorite episode? Did he ever tell you?
2: Um, I'm, I'm sure that Walking Distance and A Stop at Willoughby, because, again, they deal with, you know, the whole premise of going back in time. Time Enough at Last, I think, was one of his favorites. Um I'm sure death had revisited going back, the uh, SS officer going back to the concentration camp, he was probably pretty proud of.
1: Jumping again, because I can't help myself, thought pops in my mind. You know, imagination was everything to him. And I think he did that for you as well. When you recount in the book the stories of how he dealt with you, how he. Really and truly nurtured that imagination within you. Even how he turned off the lights at night in your room. Tell us about that.
2: Right. He he would say, blow out the light, and I would blow, and he would he would uh, hit the light, which, which I do. Right. Which I then did with my own children. So did that's you? i right.
1: And I love that because that does that gives you you know that bridge between you know imagination and reality guy was amazing he also was a big force in hollywood i want people to understand this is something that um i think people today don't really he was actually the president of of the academy of television arts and sciences for a while and and um made some big changes in all of that political um he was willing to put his um money where his mouth was so to speak <laughs> to take it on the chin for for uh right. going for right yeah, absolutely yeah um he he uh Here's some other thing that um, people may not know. He wrote the original screenplay for Planet of the Apes, including the phenomenal ending scene. Yes,
2: right. He did. Huh? What what he had originally written proved to be too expensive to produce, and they brought in another writer. But the iconic ending is my father's.
1: i and he shares rights on that uh, um, uh, credits on that uh, with the other guy. Other film that he made, pretty apropos for today, the Doomsday Flight. Mm-hmm. Um, well it was seven days in may, I think he did uh
2: do you know which he preferred? Did he
1: prefer the medium of t v or did he prefer long form um in those days uh screenwriting
2: you know I don't know hallie i those that's one of the many questions I would have loved to have asked him
1: right, and what about um and he also wrote short stories, yes,
2: right. Well, a lot of short stories when he was in college, but mostly he wrote in script form after that and then novelized 19 of The Twilight Zones, uh, which we have brought, uh, my husband and I have brought back into print um, stories from The Twilight Zone, more stories from The Twilight Zone. And he wrote uh, The Season to Be Wary, which was a novella, which was his first foray actually into writing um, in narrative form.
1: Hmm, interesting. What was your favorite that he wrote?
2: Um, well, Of the Twilight Zones, In Praise of Pip was one of my favorites that I didn't see until after my father died, and that was a particularly poignant one for me because I, when I watched it, I realized my father and I had used a routine that he and I had, um, who's your best buddy, uh, who's your best friend, um, Jack Krugman and Billy Mummy were in that. Um, I loved Walking Distance, A Stop at Willoughby. My dad wrote something called A Storm in Summer that I thought was fabulous. Uh, Again, Death Head Revisited, I thought was very powerful.
1: And most of these are available um, where?
2: Um, Well, the uh, the Twilight Zones uh, always run on New Year's and I think the Fourth of July through, um, oh, I can't think of what the name is. And, and MeTV, I guess, airs it also. Viacom is what what I was struggling for back okay. then. Okay. Okay. Uh, and you can. And they're also them. available, I guess, EVDs. Right, and they're
1: also available. I hate to say it on YouTube. Um, if you've missed them, go find them because you will understand what great writing and production really are night gallery came later was that the last thing that he did for tv
2: um no he did a storm in summer after that and uh, there were others as well night gallery he was not as thrilled with because he did not have creative control over night gallery as he did with the twilight zone and after a while he realized that it was a show that made no comment about anything and that was very frustrating to him But that said, there was a show on Night Gallery, a couple anyway, uh, particularly they're tearing down Tim Riley's bar that I think is just a beautiful script, and I think one my dad really very much liked.
1: Syndication, did I bring this up yet? I don't think I did, but he did not like syndication. He didn't like the concept because he didn't like what happened to syndicated TV shows, which were chopped and carried on because they can put more ads into them, right? That was something he really railed against. Yeah, and um, right. and 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 at this point, it's the lifeblood of of TV shows. Let's get into his health. Let's get into the fact that he smoked incessantly. In fact, those wonderful scenes of him—you uh, always see him with a cigarette. I don't care where you were, whether it was Mike Wallace interviewing, <laughs> there's always a cigarette in your dad's hands. He dies at the tender age of fifty years old. Give me a break. But weird, huh? From the uh, like his father, who died young from a heart attack, he also succumbed um, to heart a heart disease. Um, How? how, Where do we even go with that? Um, You were absolutely devastated. Went into a deep depression. You've been very honest about talking about yeah. Talk about that a little bit. I think that's so brave of you that you even bring it up.
2: Well, it was. You know, I really. I th- you know, we all believed that my dad would, that the surgery, the open-heart surgery was the answer, even though it was brand new back then. We just felt that, you know, he was going to get well, and he was very much looking forward to the, you know, second part of his life and writing a novel, and he wanted to have, he was hoping someday to write a Broadway show. Um, his smoking was, you know, he was a terrible smoker, as you said. He was con- you never seen without a cigarette. I often wonder today if he would have been a smoker with all the, uh, problems that smokers have, you know, you can't smoke anymore That we know God. today,
1: right, yeah, right.
2: Um, yeah, he, he died, uh, he had open heart surgery and died three days later. And I just couldn't, I couldn't grasp that. I couldn't imagine a life, you know, without my father. You were 20? I had just turned 20 um, a few weeks before he died, yes.
1: And that kind of, a how long did it take you to come back from that? Do you ever come back from that? Do you ever get the well, life you had before when your dad is a part of your life on this earth, on this zone, as they say, versus um, when he's not?
2: I don't think you ever get that life back. You know, there's always that whole, I'm not unique to that. You know, anybody who's lost someone close experiences that. It's gone forever. I think writing this book, though, Hallie, really brought my father back in a way that. I had not really even anticipated.
1: Lucky you, right? Right. Lucky you because he left such a legacy for you. Um, And we'll talk about the legacy left for the world in a minute. Um, Something he said when he was dying uh, that I find absolutely brilliant and wisdom for us all. And I think this is really an insight into him, which is why I'm so glad that you include it in the book and you tell it. Um, At the end, he said the fear was not leaving life, but of leaving loved ones. Which says so much about who he was, doesn't it? Relationship it was all to him. Yep, absolutely all. It was the relationship. Yeah, it,
2: and, was, the, it yeah. was the loss of the, the loss of the relationship.
1: And it's interesting to me because I think that's why your your book. Another reason it works so well is because you're so able to convey relationship between you and him, between your mom and him, between he and his brother and his parents. You do relationship very well. I hope he le- he gave you that legacy. Reading about him, I have to say this to you. I, I got the sense that he knew he didn't have a long time in this zone we call life. Do you think he knew that or sensed that well, or feared I that?
2: A, I think in a sense, Hallie, he did know. I mean, the genetics, you know, there was a genetic predisposition that, you know, as, as you mentioned, his, his own father died when he was 52. He couldn't quit smoking. I'm sure that always haunted him. Hmm. Yeah.
1: His legacy, your thoughts.
2: Right, but like I said, he really thought that the surgery would fix things.
1: Right, I understand. Um, yeah, Bobby Darren, same thing went in and 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 never quite made it back from that. But um, how about your dad's legacy? Your thoughts?
2: Well, I, is your question? Would he be surprised by this legacy? I'm not. Is that what you're asking? Well, yeah, I guess we'll
1: let you go where you want to go with it. <laughs>
2: Take it he away would you have will. been, Yeah, he would have been stunned. You know, as I said, he didn't believe that his writing would stand the test of time. He also said in an interview that the thing he would have liked most was to win a Writers Guild Award, to be honored by his peers. And, of course, last year Twilight Zone was voted one of the three best shows ever, and that just would have knocked him out.
1: Absolutely. How about you? What do you think was the number one gift he left you with?
2: I think the thing that I learned most from my father was how to parent, um, sense of humor, um, trying not to take myself too seriously, same kind of politics, those things.
1: Lady, you're very, very lucky and you're very, very talented. Lucky because you Thanks. had a great, great dad talented he gave you that too the book as I knew him my dad Rod Serling my guest Ann Serling for more information visit Ann's website at com. find her on Facebook under Ann Serling and on Twitter where her handle is the same I want to thank you Ann for being my guest on the Hallie jane show you prove talk radio is for fine minds love yours loved your dad's and he would be proud thanks lady
2: thank you so much Hallie
1: you're welcome Before I go, I want to remind everyone that other shows... I think as good as this one, she really was quite the guest, that Anne Serling. Um, Podcasts of current and past shows are always available to listen to free on iTunes under the Hallie Caster Jane Show. The Hallie Caster Jane Show is also available for download via Spreaker.com, Stitcher.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and a host of other venues. Google the Hallie Caster Jane Show. You'll find the venue that best suits your needs, I promise. Uh, We're also always available to listen to on Hallie Caster Jane.com. that's the website, which I hope you'll visit often for the latest information on our upcoming segments. And while you're at HallieCasterJane.com, don't forget to visit my blog to read my latest musings. I'll be back next week, same time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for another edition of the Hallie Caster Jane Show, Taco Radio for Fine Minds, and brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download at www. Audible trial dot com forward slash the Hallie Caster Jane show. Over one hundred thousand titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 Player. I hope you can find Anne's book there, by the way. Stay in touch. Remember that's HallieCasterJane.com. dot com. Discover us on Facebook at Halley Jane and on Twitter at Halley C J. I love to hear from you. So till we meet again, this is Hallecaster Jane. It's A wrap.